Welcome to the Reviewer 2 Does Geoengineering podcast. Today I'm here with Shikha Paseen and we're going to be talking about the Montreal Protocol. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So who the hell are you? <laughs> I'm one of the billion plus Indians who is uh, actually affected by climate change quite significantly, but I'm one of the fewer who actually work on it. So I'm a researcher on climate mitigation technologies. I'm with an organization called the Council on Energy, Environment and Water. We're amongst Asia's leading think tanks. We focus all of our efforts on policy recommendations to ensure that environmental issues are getting tackled at multiple levels of governance, but in a manner that still makes sense for India's development. I think so that poli- more or less. So policy yeah. one that's snuck into an academic podcast then, right? Pretty much. I mean, I've done a fair amount of academic work, and I think that's where we differ from a lot of other policy research entities in that all of our methodologies are still academically rigorous, and all of our work is scientifically peer-reviewed. When I think about policy wonks, I generally think of um, opinionated blowhards who are funded by shadowy organisations to do their bidding and uh, don't produce anything that's verifiable or scrutinisable. So could you disabuse me of this notion in relation to your particular case? Yeah, absolutely. I'd be happy to. (laughs) And so actually, I'm really glad that you are being so upfront about this because I, I suspect that a lot of people feel this way, but very few of them have the courage to to say it out loud and question it or, in or the, a manner. Or the lack of social skills, depending on how you look Perhaps, at it, right? Yes, yes. Your social skills clearly seem to be one to contend with. But yeah, it's we're funded completely independently. So what I mean by that is that my client is never my funder. In most cases, my client happens to be either the government of India or um, you know, some sort of a secretariat that's looking after an international negotiation. But the funding always comes from philanthropies. And so we raise the money independently to answer a broad subset of a research questions and then actually work on the methodology as well as refine our hypothesis once the money comes in. Um, And the hypothesis is, in most cases, drafted a little bit in consultation, at least with the government entity or the negotiation that we're trying to create impact within, so that there is a little bit of a stakeholder buy-in. And we're trying to generate interest in what we're doing and make sure that what we're doing is actually relevant for the folks that we're doing it for. But when you you say a client is never your fund, you're Mm. describing that as in, in a manner which I think most think tanks could describe themselves in that way, in that they take money mm-hmm. from one person or mm-hmm. one entity to influence another person or entity, right? And that right. isn't necessarily nefarious, yeah. but often is. So, right. So, again, we're not an advocacy entity, and I think that's how it's different, right? So it's not really to generate a certain amount of business interest or, you know, reform cohort of policies or or look at changes within market structures and recommend changes within market structures that are necessarily connected to the folks that are funding us. And there is no one particular, and it's definitely not the funder's interest that is being pushed forward with our research. So the policy recommendations are actually steeped in evidence, right? So we will run randomized control trial, for example, to test whether customers and households in India 
will respond positively to a consumer awareness program that tells them about how to keep their air conditioner running in a more efficient manner, right? Now, this has uh, business connotations to it, but it is not funded by the industry. Um, it is much more an academic exercise to be able to nudge the government when they go ahead and actually start designing a consumer awareness program that these are the aspects that they really need to be careful about. Um, and that's more the sort of work that we do rather than looking at you know, a particular form of tax reform that has a particular cohort of industries, you know, at its core. Okay. I mean, you, you're addressing the sort of commonly articulated core concern of think mm-hmm. tanks. They're basically just front groups for special interests, right? So you might get the National Rifle Association in America that spends lots of money influencing politicians to let everyone have and use lots of guns and the yeah. uh, outcome of this is that lots of people use guns and one of the things that they use them for is shooting other people sure. america's um, got a bad reputation for shooting people quite deservedly so in my opinion and but there's a more subtle uh, mm. uh, issue with this kind of funding is that philanthropies might come with a world view which is not necessarily directly for private profit and they might often be yeah. quite blind to yeah. their world view right and they yeah. might advance yeah. a particular philosophy and that could be you know things that quite sound quite good like you know yeah. human rights whatever but they might end up you know yeah. presenting the, their worldview in a way that they're perhaps blind to but but tramples on other people's worldview and other people's views of rights so how do you as a think tank look to make sure that you are not bringing what you might call ideological bias in mm. to your operations as a result of your involvement with your funders yeah i actually really like that you've asked this question because it's something that we try really hard to ensure that we don't do and in fact i'm certain we've got into trouble at some point or another with our funders for using our research to call out excuse my french but the bullshit that has been going on for the last four decades when it comes to climate change and climate action to give you an example so i work i take care of our climate negotiations program here at the council And one of the pieces that we came out with last year uh, basically estimated and for the first time put together data in the public domain in an easy to access and uh, palatable manner to suggest what which countries had done on climate change, you know, in keeping with what they had committed to within the Kyoto Protocol. So we assessed all of their pre-2020 climate commitments and how far they had fared, you know, given what they had sort of committed to doing. And it was staggeringly poor, right? I mean, I worked in climate and I was still surprised with the number. So if you basically take out the Eastern European countries, which at that point were going through, you know, a complete economic recession given USSR's collapse, if you take that group of countries out, the number of emissions reduction from all developed countries was less than 4%, right? And it was supposed to have been at least- That much? That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, I didn't realize it was anything like exactly, I thought exactly. you were going to say 1%. That's four yeah. times better than I was expecting. Well, that I guess that's the benefit of having really low expectations. But I mean, I, I had honestly thought that it would have been a little bit more, right? And this is the sort of work that CW does. Like we, we sort of take global narratives and spin them on their head and question them in a manner that's meant to be questioned without turning into an advocacy group, right? So 
whatever research that we do, it has an element of calling truth to power, but also doing it in a manner that is actually pragmatic and uh, and constructive. So what How we did calling with truth that... to power go down in modern India? Um, my understanding of it is that it's um, become a substantially less tolerant and open society as a result of the um, political um, slant that has emerged. And it's one of the uh, countries that's often cited as being... Uh, part of the world slide into authoritarianism. Does that make your work more or less difficult? Do you find that you're challenging to to call out political uh, convenient untruths and cronyism in Indian society? Or do you find that it's quite easy and you're not subjected to undue pressure or media attacks and other kinds of harassment for doing what you do? So when it comes to doing what we do, actually, we're finding that the current government is extremely proactive in wanting to commit to leadership in climate change internationally and showing what emerging economies could possibly do while also raising the profile of our own commitments domestically, right? So if you look at the net zero announcement that got made in at COP26 last year, that data point actually came from research that my colleague, Dr. Vaibhav Chaturvedi, had actually led. And we went out on a limb, right, because we were one of the only Indian institutions to have evaluated what net zero for India could look like, which at that point was completely being looked at as this westernized agenda to raise ambition. But when we ran the numbers and presented it, you know, to, to the people that needed to look at it, you know, we were very pleased to see that the prime minister actually did make, um, you know, a commendable ambition for net zero for India. Um, so I think there's, you know, there's a mix in terms of how we're seeing environmental issues, particularly climate change, uh, you know, how these are being addressed at a foreign policy level within India. And I have to say, it's actually a really encouraging time to be working on this in India, given the kind of uh, leadership that the government is taking on on many of these matters. Well, that's all a very rosy picture and some useful background information. Um, So I would be interested to hear a bit more about your specific proposals. So you've got something pretty novel to talk to us about. So do you want to give us a brief intro to both what you want to address and also how we came up with it? Because it when I saw it, I was like, that's really smart. I'd like to hear more about that. So let's, well, let's that, hand it over sure. to you and give, you the, give us the intro. Sure. Thank you. So I think before I talk about this particular piece, it may be helpful for everyone to know that I actually lead our sustainable cooling program here at the Council on Energy, Environment and Water. And when we talk about sustainable cooling, you know, it goes well beyond the scope and the purview of the Montreal Protocol because, you know, as you would be seeing in your newspapers pretty regularly, uh, you know, it's been really hot and heat stress is becoming a reality for many parts of the world increasingly. So and it, for yeah. people who are un, unclear and unsure on this, could you explain how cooling relates to the Montreal Protocol? I know, but some people listening okay, might not. Okay, sure. So I'm assuming that people who are on this podcast uh, would have learned in school about the ozone hole that was appearing in the ozone layer in the atmosphere of our planet. And it was happening because of the use of certain refrigerants and certain gases called CFCs. 
And then they found that these CFCs were immensely potent for the ozone layer and were creating this entire glut in, in our atmosphere. And the gas that they all decided to transition to, you know, away from CFCs and HCFCs is something called HFCs. So it basically moved from chlorofluorocarbons to hydrofluorocarbons, which is what a lot of the world is currently using. Sad truth is that while HFCs are fine for the ozone layer, and we've actually done a fairly decent job of fixing that problem, um, these gases at a molecular level are thousands of times more potent than carbon dioxide as a greenhouse gas. So while they're not causing any more damage to the ozone layer, they're actually uh, you know, increasing and hold the potential to increase global warming temperatures by at least 0.5 degrees Celsius. So it's a, it's a massive issue, but it's an issue that has a technology fix. And because of that existing and because it was this alternative that was causing this issue, back in 2016, all of the countries who are part of the Montreal Protocol came together and, and signed on to something called the Kigali Amendment to the Montreal Protocol, which basically has stipulated all 197 nations that are enlisted within the Montreal Protocol to phase down their HFC use by 85%. And so that is how the gases are being regulated. And for those of you who don't know, most of these gases are used in our cooling and our heating appliances. So you'll find them in your cars, in your all of your cold chain supply chains. You know, it's in your room air conditioners. It's also in a lot of heating appliances. And of course, in a lot of industrial processing. Um, for a country like India, the heating load is actually not as much within the residential space. And so our emphasis, along with looking at the Montreal Protocol and the Kigali Amendment, has also been on the development imperative of cooling in general, because it's estimated that heating stress or heat stress is going to cause us to lose the equivalent of 34 million jobs by the end of this decade. And that's a big number for a developing economy like India. So our work has been looking at, you know, how do we make sure that we're getting to the commitments that we've made under the Kigali Amendment while ensuring equitable access to sustainable cooling? And in the process, looking at how industry and economic prosperity can actually be achieved also on the supply side of this technology. So that's the short of the program that I run here. And in line with that, one of the things that was brought up a few years ago within the Montreal Protocol negotiations, which we of course follow very closely, was the notion of climate geoengineering and how solar radiation management, you know, was reported by a few countries as you know, becoming an issue that might find space within the Montreal Protocol for governance because the UNEA mechanism in the meeting had, of course, failed to arrive at uh, a governance pattern for climate geoengineering in general. And it was on well, the back hold of on, that. Hold on there. Yeah, so yeah. I just want to stop you there because I, I really want to sure. unpack this particular point, right? So people will probably be listening to this podcast thinking, you know, that's all quite entertaining. I've got a general link for interesting climate. I'm glad I know a little bit more about the Kigali initiative. And I'm glad I know more about your think tank. But then suddenly you went from that to let's mm. regulate geoengineering under the Montreal Protocol. So you've mm. compressed about probably 10 minutes of logic into a sentence. So can you 
go through that very carefully and slowly. Sure. Why on earth okay. is the Montreal Protocol the right thing to regulate climate geoengineering? How did he even come up with that as an idea? Yeah. So what happened was, for those people who don't know this, by the way, Montreal Protocol is the most successful environmental treaty that civilization has seen till date. By what measure? Um, or at least by the actual success of ensuring the ozone layer protection and then managing to create an amendment to solve for the issues that are being caused by the alternatives that were put in place to, to take care of the ozone cell or ozone layer. And if you look at how parties came together, how the funding came together, how the technology, well, back then it was called technology transfer happened, and how all countries came on board to back this technology transition, it is by that measure that it's said to be amongst, or it's known to be, the most successful environmental treaty that we've ever created, actually. Okay, so it's a good good spanner, but why would you want to use it as a hammer? Just because it's good at taking nuts off doesn't mean it's good at banging nails in. Well, I would have agreed with that a little bit if the Kigali Amendment had not gone through, right? Because it's also good at ensuring that whatever is being tabled and agreed upon is... Uh, is then being implemented, right? And it is one of the few environmental treaties which actually does have legal repercussions. They haven't been invoked, but it still has a lot more teeth than uh, than even the Paris Agreement, for that matter. Which, well, to be fair, doesn't have that much teeth. But uh, but yeah, it is. It's it's um it's a treaty that has legal repercussions if you are not if you're not going to meet your targets. And what happens? Do people come around and uh, repossess your car or? Uh... Annex a bit of well, your country yeah. or fine you? No, there, there's, there's economic sanctions associated with it. And there's also a lot of, I mean, the, the level of reporting regularly within the Montreal Protocol is pretty intense. And so it's never gotten to a point of having to put economic sanctions on a country because the name and shame sort of happens well before that. Also, it's a but treaty wasn't that's China not just recently looking, manufacturing loads of illegal greenhouse gases. Whether they were emitting, uh, well, over East Asia, there was emissions being noted. And, and this is exactly what I mean, that when things happen that should not be happening, they're, also, they're all actually taken a little bit by the horns within the negotiation forum, rather than them having to have like bilateral or other out of the negotiation room conversations around it. Um, so an entire investigative committee was set up by the negotiators, Investigations are ongoing on that, you know, and all of this is happening transparently. And I think that is what makes it a good treaty. So did it actually work at constraining the illegal manufacture of these um, uh, ozone depleting gases? Yeah, there's been been a significant dip in the amount of emissions that was being recorded four years ago. And that was an outlier, right? It wasn't, it was not supposed to have happened. But well, of course, did, it wasn't supposed to happen, but it did, yeah. Yeah. So. yeah, but the point is that there's a lot that's not supposed to be happening today, which is happening and is not being regulated internationally. This is one of the few forum for our where, where that does happen. Okay, so so again, step, step me through, right? You've got this good spanner and you now want to use it to bang nails in. It was never designed to regulate solar geoengineering. So why on no. earth would you want to take take a treaty? which has never been designed to do something, and then Hmm. suddenly try and make it do something completely different to what it's designed for. Why is that a good idea? 
say, now I know you haven't read my paper because that's not what I've said in it. So because the mantra... We never read any papers on the Review (laughs) Achieve podcast. If you want to go on a proper academic (laughs) podcast, there are many of them you can choose from. This is not that. So come and explain to us about your paper and your proposal and why this might work or might not work. Yeah, so what happened was after the UN Environment Assembly sort of failed to agree on a governance structure for climate geoengineering, what we saw happen really quickly was that the subsets of technologies that could be regulated by other environmental treaties um, started talking about it, right? So you had the Um, you know, Montreal Protocol suddenly become a space where a few countries started talking about solar radiation management. And that is a bit of a concern because stratospheric stratospheric aerosol injection is a big component of uh, solar radiation management. It's a technology that's used. And according to research that has happened at C2G, it's one of the more effective and affordable technology subsets of climate geoengineering. And so it was actually from a point of view of concern that countries brought this up because there were there had been a global failure to come up with a uniform space where climate geoengineering could be regulated or managed. And these countries brought it up with the point of view where we're sure that, you know, SAI is going to have some sort of an impact on the ozone layer and what is that impact going to look like. And so a scientific assessment panel was tasked with figuring out, you know, what the impact could look like, but also, um, you know, that how do you regulate it in a manner uh, that makes sense for the effectiveness of this treaty to not, you know, end up in a mess. And it was with that conversation that we thought it would be a good idea to also look at what the governance mechanisms of the Montreal Protocol actually offered to solar radiation management in general, right? And this, as you know, in parallel, I should mention that my colleague, Dr. Arunabha Ghosh, has been one of the leading voices on climate geoengineering from the global south. And he has been working on geoengineering for the last 10 years. And so, of course, with his sort of analytical bend and, and intellect on this matter, it's, you know, it's been an area that I've now read and heard about for quite a while. And so when this became uh, an issue that got tabled within the Montreal Protocol systems, we also thought it would be good to, you know, be a voice uh, that could support negotiations on the matter, should it ever come to that. And what we have found in our paper is that, yeah, sure, in terms of jurisdiction, in terms of, you know, the congruency of the subject matter, in terms of the ratification or like being a universally ratified uh, treaty, you know, there, there are points of intersection between SAI, which is stratospheric aerosol injections, and regulating that as a technology subset of climate geoengineering within the Montreal Protocol. But as researchers, we also very strongly believe that, you know, this is a, this entire technology cohort of geoengineering should have a universal home. You know, it should not be governed by, in part, by one treaty like the Montreal Protocol and then in other parts by others, because there's, of course, there's transaction costs to it, but also it's it's harder to then start maintaining balance and equity, especially because all of these technologies take a risk-risk approach from what I understand of the science. Uh, at the risk of breaking your flow, I just want to go back and Sure. To clarify a couple of points. So the first thing is, you said that you talked about the failure of negotiations. Now, 
I, I remember this failure of negotiations, but I mm-hmm. lose my, my place in the alphabet soup of climate negotiations pretty rapidly. Mm. But okay. I, so I wanted you to cover the precise yeah. meeting where the negotiations about regulating solar geoengineering broke down. Okay. Um, so it was at the UNEA where basically there was a failure to arrive at how countries were going to come together to be able to govern solar geoengineering. And it was on the back of that that at the Montreal Protocol negotiations, two or three countries actually tabled solar radiation management as being a new threat, not just to the climate at large, but to the ozone layer in particular. And so it got issued uh, to be made a part of a scientific assessment panel to check how much of an impact it could have so let, let's drill there. into a bit of detail. Let's drill into sure. a bit of detail. So when did this happen and which countries raised it? So you're basically saying, just to recap, that the, the yeah. potential for the Montreal Protocol to get involved was because yeah. of the recognized effect on the ozone yeah. layer of stratospheric aerosols. That's correct, right? Yes, yes. So if you can give us a little correct. part of history as to how this, this history of this issue unfolded then. Well, so I think one needs to recognize that for most of the negotiators who are a part of the Montreal Protocol, right, there's a lot of inventory reporting that happens. And so I don't think any of these negotiators are, and this is my opinion on the matter, I don't think any of them are, you know, not critically aware of the fact that emissions reductions are not happening at the pace at which they should be happening, which basically means that in some, you know, vision somewhere, there is an imagination that a set of technologies is going to come and solve the problem, right? And then these over-the-horizon technologies are creating a larger space for themselves in conversations, right? I mean, for whatever the IPCC may or may not have actually said in terms of solar radiation management or geoengineering, the point is that a lot more space is being alluded to these technologies than was 10 years ago the case. And it was in in line with this thinking and also the recognition that if there was going to be a global failure to have one treaty govern climate geoengineering in totality, you would see, uh, you know, things like uh, the Convention on Biodiversity or the London Convention and Protocol and the Montreal Protocol come into being to start solving for the impacts of climate geoengineering, you know, whether it was on biodiversity or oceans or the ozone there, right? And that's where the suite of the UN treaties that I mentioned comes in, because this was a this is a conversation that's not just happening within the Montreal Protocol and the ozone layer. It's a conversation that's happening related to biodiversity and CBD and on oceans and ocean acidification you know, within the London Protocol. And we're seeing this movement happen across all of these spaces. But the treaties that you're describing regulate very different aspects of the geoengineering program. So the London Protocol Mm -hmm. and London Convention are mainly invoked to deal with issues of ocean fertilisation. And you mentioned the idea of having a single place, but the Montreal Protocol and the London Convention seem to be doing very different things. And neither of them seem to be a suitable instrument to do everything. So how could you aspire to get this one place issue addressed? So the idea behind the Montreal Protocol or the London Protocol coming into 
some form of coexistence when it comes to climate geoengineering is more to regulate the impacts of it, right? Not to say that they do the same thing, but because there has not been a particular treaty or an organization or, you know, cohesive enough cooperation between different state and non-state entities to actually monitor or regulate climate geoengineering. What we're seeing is an operationalization of regulating climate geoengineering potentially at, you know, these pockets of governance which already exist. And I think that's the only commonality that there is, that because there is no other entity to do it, the existing treaties are almost forced to think about in what way and what manner and how much of it they may or may not be able to regulate of this technology subset. But, but is that actually a sensible way forward? I mean, surely something that's as big as solar geoengineering, something that's all encompassing from a policy mm. perspective of solar yeah. geoengineering. What's the point of trying to regulate it in these by these kind of mispurposed committees yeah. and organizations and structures yeah. and treaties? Because they just seem to be fundamentally unsuitable for the job. Why would you try and amend something like that rather than start again a new treaty? Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. I don't think that these are fit for purpose at all. But it's the rationale behind this paper is more to one, evaluate whether they are fit for purpose. And my takeaway is that it's not because it can't even look at solar radiation management in entirety. It can only look at you know, according to the mandate that's available with the Montreal Protocol, it can only look at SAI or technologies which we find over time have an impact on the ozone layer. Um, So I completely agree with you. As a shortcut, we can assume that SAI is the technology that we're going to be using. Um, You know, people would dispute whether that's the case, but I think as a a useful shortcut, we can say it's going to be SAI because, you know, we know much more about it and much more that it's likely to work than we do about any other technology. So on yeah. the understanding that that's the case, then to what extent might the Montreal Protocol be able to come up with some relevant structure to manage solar geoengineering? Um, it won't be easy. I think in terms of establishing the congruence or creating the space for an amendment to happen, like, sure, you know, it's a treaty, it can be amended, but I don't think it'll be as easily done. It will require a lot of thinking because it would also become the first formal acknowledgement of being able to regulate climate geoengineering, right? So it'll also act as a precedence for a lot of other treaties and and organizations to really think about how they want to move forward. And it's not as well understood, you know, as sort of switching over your refrigerant gas or the technologies associated with those supply chains. And I think that's where, you know, climate geoengineering is slightly more wicked than other problems that we're trying to deal with in that the cause and effects are quite transnational. And we just want to make sure that if the Montreal Protocol is going to be amended to start looking at SAI in the absence of any other international agreement to do so, that then it must be based on principles of international law and the precautionary principle. And there needs to be like really clear guidelines for regulating and monitoring and ensuring trust and transparency in the research that's happening and, you know, creating that line between research and deployment. And I think well, there's, a, like there's a lot to unpack there. So I just want yeah. to interject and ask a couple of questions, right? So mm-hmm. describe this as being an amendment. So do I understand from what you're saying that the Montreal Protocol at the moment isn't capable of being uh, of regulating solar geoengineering, but could be made to regulate solar geoengineering 
with an yes. appropriate suite of amendments. Is that, is that what you're saying? Yes. Yes, because but, but it surely solar geoengineering is an is an ozone depleting activity already. So why wouldn't the Montreal Protocol cover that? Because it's not covering it so far, and also because it's happening in a really limited manner, right? So it still needs to be put on the table, and whether it is an entire amendment or it's an addendum, I think will depend on how much opposition you know the political. Well, what's the difference uh, the between policy. those two things? What what's an amendment and what's an addendum? So amendment would be like a legal amendment, right? Where you then, where the Montreal Protocol is legally responsible for governing the SRM or SAI in totality. Whereas an addendum would be that, look, these are the cohort of gases that are being used for SAI. And so you sort of label those aerosols as being additional to to the list of gases that are restricted, that are supposed to have restrictive use and application. So you'd regulate, for example, sulfur dioxide or hydrogen sulfide in yeah. order to bring them within the scope of the agreement. So it's not, it's not, um, so let me just repeat that back to you and explain what I think you said is that the Montreal Protocol has the, has the architecture to regulate this activity at the moment, but it doesn't have, it, it doesn't have the jurisdiction over the relevant gases. So you'd have to add these quite specifically yeah. into the Montreal Protocol so that it's almost like you've kind of got an empty box of regulation into which you can place a gas yeah. in order to bring that within the the um, purview, if that's a word, yeah. the scope of the, uh, yeah. of the regulation. And how would that yeah. happen? Would that be a decision that's made by a room full of experts or is this something that has to be agreed and signed off with all the country? So it will be something that the SAP, which is the Scientific Assessment Panel, will first of all have to table, right? Because the science on this, you know, for people like you who follow climate geoengineering may be clear, right? But there's the large majority of even negotiators who are not very clear on the science and the impact, you know, that these technologies could or could not be having. And and by regulating it, would it mean that we're in some ways permitting large-scale research projects of SAI to continue, right? And I think there is a lot more politics to the science, which will then take over. But from a legal speak point of view, yeah, sure, it can be regulated within the Montreal Protocol. There is enough congruence in the subject matter. And from a jurisdiction point of view, yes, it is well-placed to be able to look at SAI and any other aerosol-based climate geoengineering technologies. So but the just, politics... Just clarify for me the process. Yeah. Just clarify for me the process. So. Are these scientific, the people with the scientific responsibility within the protocol, are they nominally independent or are they they appointed by individual countries? So you'd have to convince each country's representative to do it. Or is it a case of it's just, you know, six scientists that can do what they like, but there's some way for the governments to overrule them if they start doing completely stupid things like declaring themselves to be kings of the world and things like that? Mm, So... If I'm not mistaken, because I know much more about how the TEEP is constituted, which is the Technological and Economic Assessment Panel of the Montreal Protocol, there is a government nomination that happens for the people who are on it, but it is not that the government can oppose the scientific findings because it's an entire group of people. And this is how it works. So in theory, then, what you're saying is that the government, the scientific panel can just decide one day they're going to regulate SO2 and then it's regulated and that's that. Oh, no, no. And that's, this is what I was saying. So the scientific assessment panel will put forward the science and then the politics will take over. 
right? So countries will actually say whether they would like for the Montreal Protocol to be regulating it. Should it be regulated? You know, would regulating it mean that you're allowing for it to happen in a much bigger manner? You know, and then you'll have, you know, countries say that, well, we would not want this to be a part of the Montreal Protocol. And then there'll be countries who will say we want a complete ban on it. You know, and that's when the politics will start playing out. At this point, it's still in a scientific assessment mode. And does it matter for those purposes whether it's an addendum, addendum or an amendment? I'm not clear on the difference between those two. Yeah, I'm rubbish yeah, at all of this so. treaty stuff. No, I don't no. know anything about it at all. Well, I'm actually kind of glad that you are. It makes it easier for me to sound smart. But um, it's essentially, if you were to do an addendum, it would not be as political as doing a formal amendment to the protocol. Because so I think it could requires... Could an addendum be done then? I mean, like, it seems... I mean, it seems kind of um, obvious, I, right? That if you've got, yes, if, but let, me, I think, let me just let me just explain yeah. this from a kind of idiot idiot perspective, right? So, you've got a protocol that's designed to regulate gases which affect the ozone layer, and you've got some gases which were not previously politically important, but we do know they affect the ozone layer. It would just, it would seem, therefore, almost a trivial step to say, well, yeah, we need that one as well. Can you put it in our bucket, please? Right. Mm. Yes, but then there is enough countries who will not allow for that to happen. And it cannot just happen in a baseless manner, right? So I think it's important for the science to be able to be communicated, keen on climate geoengineering or against it. Like, I don't think that's unanimous well, at all, right? And that's. Yeah, but I, I, and, I get that. Hmm. But what I'm saying is, I mean, just from a, a purely technical perspective, right? You've got a protocol that's designed to regulate an activity, and, and climate geoengineering would, you know, almost indisputably fall in. To the scope of that regulatory process in that it materially changes the ozone layer and therefore yeah. it makes sense for it to be regulated so you, yeah. by by saying that you don't want the montreal protocol to regulate it you're almost mm. by default therefore saying that some other treaty organization should exist to regulate that it seemed on the face of it completely obvious to the point of being dumb not to to have the Montreal Protocol looking at least the gases, if not the aerosols themselves, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, but it's something that this is exactly why it was tabled, right, within the Montreal Protocol. And this is exactly why countries are keen to understand how they can go forward with it and if they should be going forward with it. Because even the ban, like if you want to abandon SAI in general, right, or you want to regulate it, I think there'll be a lot of political opposition even to something like that. I'm not saying that it's easy. I'm just saying that it's easier than an amendment because the politics will still play out in the room. So if I didn't want the Montreal Protocol to regulate, then how would I justify that? Because it seems obvious that the Montreal Protocol should at least have some role. What's hmm. not clear to me is whether it should be the primary regulatory forum. That's the yeah. point that puzzles so right? yeah i think there's two aspects to it one is that if you're looking at technologies that will directly just impact the ozone right uh, one is that and then for the montreal protocol to be able to say that well look this is the kind of impact it's having and this is where we stand on it versus saying that we know it's going to impact it and so now let's start regulating it which would include things like research experiments right i'm not really sure montreal protocol is the place to be conducting science experiments or the treaty that should be monitoring scientific experiments because the experiments, I think, are ready to, to be rolled out. Uh, there's no more there. You know, there's nothing stopping 
large scale experiments from becoming deployments and i think that's where it's tricky for the montreal protocol to kind of emerge as being the treaty that that actually regulates um, sai in totality so let me just repeat back to you what i think you've said so mm-hmm. there's the ozone depleting elements of sai and you think that there's a good case for solar geoengineering to be regulated in that capacity by the Montreal Protocol. But there's also lots of other things. So, for example, slippery slope arguments are nothing mm-hmm. to do with the um, uh, with the Montreal Protocol and it would be a very bad place to go and try and do that regulation. So what I think you're saying is that we don't want to – there might be resistance both from the Montreal Protocol organisations themselves and also from the countries that support the Montreal Protocol pushing back on the idea of using the Montreal Protocol to conduct that regulatory operation because there's a recognition of its inadequacy, right? That's what I think you said. Yeah, because it, you know, look at the regulation pattern that there is, right? Like Montreal Protocol regulates, you know, in terms of what happens in the ozone layer and in terms of the emissions data that's reported by countries. This is a whole other beast. And I don't think that it yet has the the pillars of governance that will be able to manage something that operates in this in this kind of a manner that requires a completely different monitoring system. Okay, so if the Montreal Protocol isn't extended to do this, then how how could it be regulated, and what would be the interaction between that and the Montreal Protocol? Because it seems that there's a complexity here, and that mm. the, the Montreal yeah. Protocol very much is designed to deal with ozone monitoring modulating yeah. gases yeah and then you've got this uh, issue with an modulating gas which would be one would imagine naturally regulated within that protocol and so if the yeah. protocol declines to offer that regulatory framework then you've got a situation where there's going to be some kind of turf war right so let's yeah. imagine that you had a situation where we started using sulfur dioxide in fridges for example now i mean this is purely hypothetical it probably wouldn't work yeah. at all but Let's just play with this idea for a moment, right? So let's imagine that a new generation of fridges are developed. We start using SO2. um, Mm. And the Montreal Protocol might then say, well, we want to regulate SO2 because it's used in fridges. And then uh, the solar geoengineering people say, oh, no, no, you can't regulate that now because that's a solar geoengineering gas. And then the Montreal Protocol people might say, well, actually, it's not a geoengineering gas because we're only interested in regulating it for refrigeration use. So do you see what I mean? There there could be real clumsiness that's exactly that's exactly why it's an issue, right? Because it's not as easy as including a subset of gases into that box. You know, that was the analogy that you used, right? That the framework exists and you can basically start enlisting chemicals and gases that, that they would like to monitor. It depends a lot on the application. And I imagine, you know, in response to what you're asking me, I imagine that when it comes to SAI, should the incidents actually start increasing, I don't think the Montreal Protocol would be able to say that, look, we, we want nothing to do with this and we don't really know what's happening. They will have to get involved. And I think the first thing that needs to happen is for countries to first start understanding what this technology is actually about and the conversations on how do you start governing such experiments before they get out of hand and actually start causing harm to the ozone need to be looked at as well. But just as the UN, you know, the UN 
Yunea meeting that collapsed, there is also a fear of that happening within the Montreal Protocol because it's the same countries, right? It's it's universally ratified. Okay, so in in the the further future, when this becomes a bit more developed, there's a couple of possibilities. Mm. So either the Montreal Protocol looks to regulate some of the climate geoengineering gases uh, and therefore has an influence on the policy, or that the Montreal Protocol is expanded in some way so that it actually becomes the principal forum for regulating everything to do with cellular geoengineering, apart from perhaps the very early experimentation, right? So which of those two uh, approaches do you think is most likely or most appropriate? There might be a difference. You might think that what's likely is that going to be a disastrously bad setup but it doesn't mean it's not likely so uh, talk, talk me through that hmm. I actually don't think that it would be the, the latter I think that there I don't think the Montreal Protocol is going to emerge as the place where solar radiation management is primarily governed I think there is a lot of uh, there's a lot of um what's the word I'm looking for well anyway I think the Montreal Protocol is still uh a community where they really don't want to expand the, the, the purview of the protocol to start including all kinds of climate climate change related technologies. Well, to, right? to reuse I mean, one of my favorite quotes yeah. uh, from Trot, from Trotsky, you may not be interested in war, but war is interested in you. Sure, and sure. To apply that in this field, you could say, well, it doesn't really matter what the Montreal Protocol people mm. want to do. This issue is going to come and very much present itself to them, and they're going to have yeah. to deal with it. So, at the moment, we don't have anywhere to regulate cellular yeah. engineering. It hasn't really got a home. So, yeah. is it not possible that we could just say, well, okay, the Montreal Protocol is best of all the alternatives, and we'll just stick it there because we've got nowhere else to put it? Well, if you're only if you're only talking about the aerosol-based technologies, right? If you're only talking about like the technologies that are going to impact the ozone layer, then yes, some kind of regulation is going to have to happen within the Montreal Protocol. But I don't think that includes SRM in general, and I definitely don't see Montreal Protocol emerging as the place where SRM in general is going to be governed. Why not? I mean, it seems like it could be regulated there. And there isn't another obvious place. And unless we're going to build an entire new treaty architecture, isn't it mm. just going to end up getting dumped in there? Because it's it's like when you kind of have those you have those weird things in your house that don't really have a place. And so they get all dumped mm. in a box or put on a particular shelf for weird things. Like, for example, I've got a cardboard dinosaur looking at me that some kid made and gave to me. It doesn't have a place, but it's just put on a particular shelf because there's nowhere else to put it. I don't have a cardboard yeah, dinosaur, dinosaur display think, cabinet. So, No, I hear what you're saying, but I don't think it's as easy as just dumping a sub new subset of gases, right? I think there's a lot more complexity to the monitoring and the transparency and the science actually, right? And the uncertainties behind these technologies. So I don't think it's really well, Yeah, I get, I get it. I'm not, yeah. look, let, me just, let me just explain back to me what I think you're explaining there because it's important. And I think there's a lot of agreement and I'm trying to probe the areas where I don't understand or whatever. So mm. my, my understanding of what you're saying is that the Montreal Protocol, quite reasonably you're saying this, is the Montreal Protocol was never designed to do this. It would be a complete misappropriation of the purposes of the treaty to mm. apply it to this it doesn't have the right regulatory processes and structures to deal with this problem and i'm not disputing any of that all i'm saying yeah. is that despite that is it 
just not the most likely thing that it'll get used for this because there's nothing else that is immediately and obviously applicable to the purpose. No, I still don't think so because I think there's a lot of politics behind why there is no agreement so far, right? Like there's a reason that a new entity has not come into play, come into being to regulate ge- uh, climate geoengineering. And I don't think that the Montreal Protocol is uh, is immune to that politics. Okay, well, let, let, let's take that argument at face value then. So you'll have a situation where the, all of the issues that are preventing this sector being regulated are going to persist for a non-trivial amount of time. It's not like they're suddenly going to get sorted out tomorrow, okay? Yeah. And then meanwhile, the Montreal Protocol is sitting there with its nice, shiny capability to regulate all of these uh, ozone-affecting pollutants or engineering gases, depending on how you look at them. And surely in, in that vacuum where there's no regulating going on, eventually it becomes inevitable that the Montreal Protocol is going to end up having to do something because just by dint of the fact that these gases are out there or potentially soon to be out there and they're going to tread on the toes of the Montreal Protocol, doesn't it then mm. become inevitable that the Montreal Protocol is going to end up getting involved because nobody is doing anything about it? But do you think that large-scale experimentation and actual deployment of the technologies will happen before a governance structure is put in place? Because if yes, well, yeah, then, I do. Let me yeah, let me just then, ex- explain that point because I, you yeah. know, you're asking me what is potentially a, a rhetorical question, but as I'm directly asked my opinion, I will give you an opinion, right? So. My view on this is that if you look generally at the history of technology, they tend to get regulated post hoc. They rarely mm. do they get regulated beforehand. I mean, even something that's as destructive and dangerous and proliferation risk embedded as nuclear weapons didn't get yeah. regulated in the, the start. But we've yeah. ended up with a bunch of regulations that, through a combination of treaties and norms, do tend to do quite a good job of regulating a lot of challenging technologies now one that's often discussed at the moment is ai you know there's a lot of regulatory concerns and issues around ai at the moment and again that's an example of a technology that really hasn't got much regulation and we're just starting to see the very fringes of that coming in now with there's some norms around deep fake for example so uh, my understanding of this is that it's seen as being um, uh, completely there's a complete prohibition uh, on on deep fake porn within the mainstream porn environment you can't go looking for the stuff it's like child porn it's kind of hidden away it's like it's not seen as being something that can be socially acceptably introduced onto mainstream porn sites and my understanding is that there's also some statutory regulation that's coming on to the books in various different countries where, where people are starting to regulate this but none of this happened in advance you know mm. deep fake porn isn't something that is only just been imagined and most people have only just thought of it because it's just become possible right and so that's when the you know most people become aware of this technology but most people aren't really aware of solar geoengineering either right and yeah. my my suggestion is that the technology will tend to get regulated at the point at which you know a meaningful deployment is likely i mean just somebody in a lab making deep fake porn just to prove you can do it isn't a social issue and probably wouldn't attract the attention of busy regulators just like we've got mm. solar geoengineering now that there's no mm. obvious place to regulate solar geoengineering but my suggestion is that the technology will probably develop in surprising manners and it will be after that process of development that we'll 
start to regulate it? You know, do, do you disagree with my assessment there or not? I would like to believe from whatever I have, no, and I don't actually disagree with your assessment. This, this is literally the first conversation I'd had with Arunabha when I'd sat in on one of his geoengineering talks. But my suspect feel with the Montreal Protocol is that once the scientific assessment panel actually brings out the report, right, which suggests things like SAI almost definitely becoming pervasive technologies, that there might actually be consideration whether the Montreal Protocol can unilaterally impose a moratorium on something like that in the absence of a global entity to regulate it. Um, that is how I would, that's how I've actually been thinking about it. But I guess the rest of it is, you know, time will tell because both the alternatives that you've presented, my suspect feel about how it may happen. I mean, we'll, we'll really have to see. That'll be another conversation in a couple of years' time, I suppose. So let's take, for example, a, a scenario where, you know, it's where everyone's surprised someone starts doing geoengineering on Wednesday. Talk, mm. talk to me about the process that might follow that. You know, how might the Montreal Protocol start to regulate this let's let's assume that there's some big global hoo-ha about it mm. and there's a regulatory imperative because obviously if, if it happens and no one cares about it no one's going to bother but how would it actually yeah. step by step start to regulate this field if it was seen as necessary for it to do so yeah so from what i've seen happen you know i know you mentioned the emissions that have been noted above you know eastern asia spoken about the kikali amendment and i've seen that you know, come through closely. My understanding of the process is that there would be, you know, a few countries that would table this as being a critical area for the Montreal Protocol to pay attention. Um, and hopefully, because this would have happened, the scientific assessment panel would also get involved to share what they understand and what they know of it. And they would essentially constitute like a, a committee, you know, probably under the deep or under the EEAP, which is, I think, the Environmental Something Assessment Panel, uh, to essentially understand what this means for the ozone layer, you know, in that isolated instance, but also looking at the science that tells you about, you know, whatever it is that we don't know about SAI so far. And I think it would be hard for the Montreal Protocol to sort of come out and impose a ban on it overnight because nothing in the UN system works overnight. But my sense of it is that once it gets recognized as being an area that is critical to the work that the Montreal Protocol has done so far, and it can be tabled by any country, it will have to be taken seriously, you know, by all parties. And there will be actual scientific findings in terms of what it means for the ozone layer. And if it's found to be truly quite detrimental. Uh, I'm not sure if the Montreal Protocol has the weight to be able to put a ban on it on its own and how much effect that will have if the experiment has already imploded. But I imagine there will be countries who will then try and take it up within, you know, other Okay, but you, you describe systems. it as a ban, but I mean, like, is it inevitable that they would try to ban it just because it has the potential to impact the ozone layer? Because would they not perhaps say, well, this is something that needs to be regulated so we're going to start issuing permits. So if you want to run yeah, an experiment, I, I don't know. I don't know if they'll do the permit system. That's the whole thing because it could be that they do that. You know, they might say that this is uh, there is a word for this actually. Um, it's 
I can't recall it right now, but it's it's like essential use, you know. So there are a subset of ozone depleting substances that are still in use today, um, you know, because they're used either for medication or in the fire hazards, fire hazard systems. Uh, but I think it'll take a lot for climate geoengineering to have to qualify as essential use. And I don't think but, that, but that the science use. or the narrative, the science well, I, or no, the I, narrative. I, I get the logic that you're saying that yeah. and it's, we don't know that geoengineering is an essential use at the moment, but is yeah. there not a more pragmatic issue that there might not be political will to ban it completely because they might view that as being regulatory overreach? I mean, I think mm. it would be a bold, be a bold member of whatever committees they have inside the Montreal Protocol structure to say yeah. we are taking it upon ourselves to say the world cannot do climate geoengineering. I, I that would surprise yeah. me because I think they there would be considerable degree of timidity of a of a an organization. Yeah. No, I was step, I was talking right? about I was talking about the the experiment that you mentioned, right? Like if it was at a degree where it could have actually been stopped, like I don't think that there would be people within the Montreal Protocol who would say to let it continue and let's see what happens in a few years' time to the ozone layer. I think so, they would take they so, would invoke the precautionary principle and something like that if it looked like it was actually gonna be disastrous enough for the ozone layer. Yeah, but no, no experiment like that would be disastrous at small scale. I mean, you know, these things mm. are not going to suddenly start influencing the climate by degrees overnight. Yeah. You know, that it would take yeah. years or decades for it to be scaled up. So what I'm saying yeah. is, is it not more likely that in the early stages you'd have some kind of permitting system that meant that people would just have to apply for a license to run a particular experiment? I mean, mm. because otherwise the alternative is that the the Montreal Protocol is sort of setting itself up as the universal arbiter of this technology, which is never yeah. what it was designed to be. And it's a, a risk-risk trade-off situation, right? So you say the precautionary principle, but other people might say, well, actually, it's incautious to mm. block the development of this technology. And I don't think mm. that that argument is difficult to make, and it's certainly not one that has not been made by other people. So I think yeah. there'll be a considerable reticence for yeah. this per body has been kind of dumped into the position where it's regulating solar geoengineering to suddenly yeah. say, well, we're just going to ban it completely because yeah. there would be a very big risk of overage, right? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of ifs over here and there were a lot of ifs in the statement, like the response that I gave you as well, right? So if the experiment was big enough, one could consider that the Montreal Protocol would actually consider on the basis of precautionary principle to say, you know, stop it. I don't think it has the political will or the regulatory system or the efficacy to actually be able to monitor experiments, you know, that would fall under SAI. And I don't think you would want that either. But in the absence of anything else, I don't think that the Montreal Protocol would be able to say that, you know, we shouldn't, we shouldn't be doing it. I think there will be countries within the treaty that would want it to happen. And of course, there'll be countries who don't want it to happen. But as long as there is going to be a direct uh, output, you know, and that will harm the ozone ozone layer, I think the Montreal Protocol is going to have to step up and say, and that could happen in a manner of wanting to put in moratorium on actual deployment. You know, it could be whether it comes to regulating the experiments, which would involve a significant transition for the governance system because it's something that's never been attempted within the Montreal Protocol before. But I'm sure like if it does 
start getting to a point where these experiments are becoming a reality and there isn't enough regulation, I think the treaty is going to have to, you know, create another vertical to be able to do that. Well, where where I agree with you on that point is that I think it is likely that we'll get to that point where the Montreal Protocol will be in a situation where sort of the only person around, Mm -hmm. right? You know, it's like, there's someone drowning, you're the only person there, you go and pick the drowning person out of the water, right? Yeah. Um, that's kind of the way I see it at the moment. But whether or not there's a willingness to continue to do that quietly without protest is another matter. The alternative is yeah. you might shout for help and ask somebody else to intervene. And my, yeah. my instinct is that there would be a considerable reluctance, even if the organisation was technically able to take on that mantle and start to regulate mm. solid geoengineering in that manner, my expectation is that something which is so, you know, civilizationally encompassing. Imagine, mm. for example, if we decided that CO2 was damaging the ozone layer. Now, I don't know whether that is or isn't the case, but I'd imagine it's not significantly damaging. Otherwise, I've heard about it. But um, mm, the, the point being, I think that the idea that the Montreal Protocol would overnight just say, oh, well, no more CO2. You're not allowed to do that. Yeah. That seems yeah. preposterous, right? They would never yeah. do that because the precautionary principle doesn't extend to shutting down modern industrial civilization so i view this as a kind of a a halfway house to that Mm. position so it seems unlikely to me that they would take this an an immediate and total position which which serves to form a robust block because i I think Mm. that would be such a a huge step for the organization to take that it would be far beyond its remit so i just wonder if you could get your comment on that yeah, I mean, I don't think anything in any international treaty moves overnight, right? Uh, and for any effective phase down to happen, it takes time, right? It takes time for the governance structure to come into being. It takes time for the countries to actually agree to start agreeing on the matter. All of this is very time consuming. But I also think that in this case, it's it's a slightly different reality in terms of the technology maturity right because like you get you use the example of carbon dioxide SAI is not all pervasive yet right and I think that's why it's important for conversations like this to happen because we haven't reached that point of technology being penetrated so deep that it will take 30 years to move away from it right we as a society are not dependent on it just yet and I think no, I understand that, but that's not yeah. my argument. My argument is that it's not whether technology is today that matters; it's whether technology has the potential to go. And I think that there would be an organisational reluctance from within the mm. Montreal Protocol to rule out society's use of technology like SAI just because it mm. happened to have an ozone depleting or an ozone modifying effect. Right? Yeah. You know, in theory, you could have a situation where substance or a process, for whatever reason, made ozone more prevalent right and so we shouldn't just assume that the that the gases that we're currently thinking of solid geoengineering are the only ones in town um just just as a point of fact can the montreal protocol regulate gases which increase the amount of ozone or can it only regulate gases that deplete the amount of ozone well it's regulating um hfcs which is not impacting the ozone at all right so um, and that's what i meant with the addendums and the amendments well talk to me about how that happened because i mean everyone thinks about the montreal protocol as to regulate the ozone layer and i understand that you you mentioned the kigali amendment but i didn't make the intellectual leap at the time that this has actually moved the organization out from its original remit so how how does it go about 
uh, adding gases which aren't ozone depleting? And what role does the Montreal Protocol have? It basically started monitoring um, the use of the replacement, right, and the effect that that it was having on uh, our greenhouse gas emissions. And it was, from what I understand, an almost... 10-year-long process for the Kigali Amendment to come into being because there were enough purists within the Montreal Protocol who said that, well, this is a greenhouse gas. There is, you know, our job is not to look after climate change. Our job is to protect the ozone layer, and this gas is not causing any harm to the ozone layer. But then there was, and that was the side that won, that said that, well, this was the alternative that we brought in right to take care of the ozone layer and so we must actually regulate regulate it as well because it was because of the montreal protocol that this gas became as pervasive as it has become today and i think from that point of view um and it is from only that point of view that i think not srm in general but only sai and those technologies that will be using aerosols and causing any sort of an impact to the ozone layer will become a part of the Montreal Protocol or are qualified to be a part of the Montreal Protocol unless there is, you know, significant change in what the Montreal Protocol well, is well, That's a really interesting point you're making. That's a really interesting point you're making. So let's just expand on that a little bit. So what, what I understand you to have said there is that the Montreal Protocol, perhaps based on its success as an environmental treaty, has looked to kind of expand its remit already beyond the direct influence. And so it would perhaps be natural to add something else into the mix. Now, the the HFCs are really not the most, they're not fully comparable to solid geoengineering because they don't have that pervasive, all-encompassing, civilizational altering effect. They're just a convenient technology, right? And so they're not like-for-like comparison of, of the two issues. But nevertheless, they do show that the protocol can be amended and adapted to yeah. deal with the issues that your the society as a whole might face as a result of solar geoengineering. So that expansion, you know, is perhaps made more likely by the history, right? So they've already expanded it once. Why wouldn't they do so yeah. again? It kind of worked last time. So, you know, why wouldn't you, right? So that you agree with my initial assessment that that, that history does make it more likely that they would continue to use the same structures uh, yeah in the absence of there not being another international entity i think technologies within climate geoengineering that will impact the ozone or that will be making excessive use of aerosols will have to be regulated under the montreal protocol how they're going to do it we don't know that's anybody's bet but but does the montreal protocol have the legal mandate and the teeth and the knowledge to be able to do that yes it's just that this technology is completely new and i'm not really sure what the governance structures for monitoring experiments so on and so forth would actually look like but in the absence of there being an overarching treaty or organization that actually monitors and regulates all climate geoengineering technologies um, the montreal protocol is going to have to start looking at sai that's just the unfortunate truth well, that largely echoes my views on the subject, embryonic though they may be, as I hadn't really thought about it much until we started this call, that the Montreal Protocol is there and it has a history of territorial encroachment on some other issues. And therefore, it seems likely that we continue to have that territorial encroachment. So 
It's an, I don't think it's territorial encroachment. I think it's uh, very responsible. Well, no, I, look, I'm not trying to make a negative out of it, but I'm just saying yeah. that, that that's what's happened. You know, people who have, yeah. there's been controversy as to whether it can regulate the uh, non-ozone depleting gases and whether it has this yeah. kind of indirect governance role. And the yeah. conclusion of that process has, as a matter of fact, been that it can, right? Mm. So the, the situation, therefore, seems, you know, the world has tried to regulate geoengineering previously they've tried to get a treaty structure agreed and it hasn't worked right mm. so the montreal protocol it seems like a, at least a somewhere around evens chance that the montreal protocol is going to end up doing this job is that, is that fair yeah, but, or not yes but i think we also have to keep in mind that the montreal protocol is not its own entity right it's still the same 197 countries that need to come together and say yes so institutionally from a governance perspective well, i understand you know, that point yeah. but there's so perhaps think, less reticence yeah there's perhaps I mean, less reticence well, from expanding the remit of the protocol that's already been expanded once than there is at setting up a completely new institutional yeah. and organizational structure right yeah so, so long as so long as it can be connected very very squarely to the ozone layer or to aerosol injections which you can um, which you can be yeah, because i yeah. mean it, that's the current favoured technology yeah. Yeah. uses exactly that approach. So it's very yeah. likely that that will happen. So I think you're, um, you managed to persuade me that this is at least something that we should be preparing for, right? Um, even if it doesn't come to pass. Uh, so I'm not sure what else to say. I'd like to hear a bit more about <laughs> the paper and the, pub, the production process on it because you haven't touched on that. So do you want to tell us, where it's published and you know how difficult sure. it was to to deal with the, the actual publication of it yeah so it was um you know we thought about it just before covid because we knew that the scientific assessment panel had been constituted to bring this out and, and we thought it'll be good for us to prime our publication just in time you know which also speaks about the governance aspect of it and what the mandate of the Montreal protocol holds and you know how much of that is actually connected to SRM uh, and so what we did was took on this study and we took on this study and brought on board you know friends and authors who have looked at geoengineering for quite a while you know and and asked them what they thought about it and they thought it was a good idea and you know once we had done the initial analysis of why UNEA failed and what was going on at other you know, other platforms like the London Protocol, so on and so forth, and, you know, how governance had been attempted. Sorry, could you just give um, me the acronym for UNEA? You mentioned that a couple of times now, and I don't have the... Um, so it's the UN uh, Environment uh, Assembly. This was the meeting that happened in Nairobi. Well, what is it and what does it do and where is it? So it was a meeting that was actually supposed to be discussing the development of a new entity to look at climate, climate geoengineering governance. And I believe there were two countries. I know that the U.S. was one of them, but and I'm forgetting who the other country was. They basically blocked it. Um, and this is the UN Environment Assembly. Pretty right? sure, so it's like all of that. Yes, you're right. It was. Um, and so in the in you know once that did not happen, and looking at what the IPCC was talking about, you know, increasing mentions of solar radiation management and climate geoengineering, as well as the understanding that SAI is going to be, you know, the one technology that's probably going to be pushed out, you know, as, as experiments under climate geoengineering. 
uh, there was a movement within the Montreal Protocol where three or four countries actually, you know, brought it up and said that, you know, these are technologies that are going to impact the work that we've done. And so we need to be looking at it. And, um, and one of the environmental assessment panels within the Montreal Protocol went as far as to qualify SRM as a threat, a severe threat. And so this assessment panel got instituted or constituted to look at the impacts of SAI and what SRM could mean for the Montreal Protocol, which is when we decided it would be interesting to try and understand you know, what the governance mechanisms could look like. And we can brought start, together... Can I just ask you to clarify sure. that point? So you've got this situation where you've had the UNEA meeting yeah. occurring. And then what yeah. interaction did that have with the Montreal Protocol? I'm not clear on, on exactly None. how that process happened. None, but it's the same countries, right? Um, so there was nothing official as far as lesser being like lesser beings like me are concerned between the UNEA. But, but hold on, did, did, the, did the, the Montreal Protocol discussions of SIOI follow the UNEA discussion? Um, yes. And was that, co- was that causal? Did it, mm, was there a, was I'm it, not was sure. It just, did I'm it just sure. happen to be For, afterwards or was it actually caused by that situation? Yeah, I, I don't know, actually. that I don't know about that because it wasn't being recorded as a... Um, agenda item in previous negotiations, but it was something that got tabled uh, right after uh, the UNEA failure happened. And so it looks like then, there's a cause yeah. and effect thing, but it wasn't a formal process no. that caused that to happen. No. It was just, no. uh, you know, something that happened. Okay, that's yes. interesting. Yeah. But go back to yeah. the paper, because you didn't talk to me about the paper. I really want to hear about the paper. Yeah, so the paper essentially looks at, you know, the precautionary principle, and it looks at in what, you know, to what capacity the Montreal Protocol can actually regulate SRM and SAI, and is it the best place to be able to do it, right? And I think in terms of jurisdiction matters, what we found to our, and we ran like legal analysis on this, we spoke to people, we read through all of the negotiations reporting that was available in the public domain, and then of course spoke to it a sounds few. like an awful lot of effort. I always kind of puzzled <laughs> as to people's different approaches to academic papers, because yeah. you get some academics that you know have half a thought and then they'll publish it. And then you have yeah. other people that will you know, create something which is like, you know, their life's work yeah. and condense it into a single paper. And yeah. I, I mean, there's obviously a happy medium, but generally speaking, yeah. I, I like to have my papers, you know, quite short and containing a single concept. So why mm-hmm. did you decide to combine the expert analysis, the legal analysis? Why did you decide to do that all within a single paper because, rather than breaking it up? Yeah, because we wanted this paper to be easily consumed by the negotiators of the Montreal Protocol. And I think if we had just focused it on the legal aspect or we had just focused it on the governance failures in the past to regulate SRM or climate geoengineering in general, it would not have been as complete a piece of reading for the negotiators to actually be able to see what they thought of it. And the idea really was that. And so this was one of those few pieces that I did that was, you know, that that started without a hypothesis, you know, otherwise usually it's like, I know what are the two research questions I'm trying to answer or, you know, subsets of one research question that I'm trying to answer in a piece. Whereas in this one, I kind of went in without wanting to know whether the Montreal protocol is the befitting place or not. And all of the 
research that we did, you know, eventually just pointed towards the fact that this is a cohort of technologies that really needs governance, you know, more critically than a lot of other technologies that are being governed today. Uh, and Montreal Protocol can look at one aspect of these technologies, but not all of them. And uh, and that's what we've tried to evaluate, right? So what are the spaces or what are the I, I, mechanisms? I get, I get the purpose. Yeah. But one yeah. of the things that you, you said earlier just shocked me there. You, you said that people are going to read your paper. I mean, I've never heard of anyone <laughs> reading an academic paper before. So how how are you? I mean, the last thing I'm ever expecting yeah. for any of my academic work is that a policymaker yeah. will directly look at my yeah. paper and yeah. it will form yes. their view. I mean, to, yeah. me, to, to my mind, there's a very convoluted process between a piece of academic research getting published sure. and a policymaker taking yeah. up that, co- that concept. So, do you, yeah. I mean, do you literally imagine that people in a regulatory position of authority are yeah. literally going to read your paper? Because that just, to me, is completely bizarre. I never imagined that that would ever happen. <laughs> so to... I mean, the short answer is no, but with this um, sort of information, we're actually waiting for the SAP report to come out because our work is already public and it's online. What report is that? The the report that we're talking about, the paper that we're talking about, it's um it's already available in the public domain, and is it published in the journal or is it just published as a white paper? It's a white paper. Yeah, are you going to publish it as a paper or not? Yeah, yeah, we've already submitted it. We're awaiting confirmation for journal publication. But our our hope with this piece is that once the findings of the scientific assessment oh, just before you just before you go into the implications, can you just cover the basics? So where did it get published and how much grief did you get off reviewers during the publication yeah. process? So we've published it right now on our website, which is the Council on Energy, Environment and Water. And it was really hard to actually find the right people to review this piece because we had sort of spoken, you know, to people like Arunabha, you know, who's an expert in this space while we were doing the while we were doing the paper itself. So we needed to look out for more external. Could, could you tell um, me more about him? Because again, you mentioned him earlier in the conversation. I'd like to hear more about his background. He's obviously a quite a significant person to your project. So could you just give us a bit more detail on who he is and what he's done? So Arunabha, his name is Dr. Arunabha Ghosh. He's the founding CEO of the Council on Energy, Environment and Water, which is where I work. And he is a global governance uh, expert He's part of several UN panels where he's actually looking at climate mitigation and, um, you know, different climate strategies. Uh, and he's essentially someone who, amongst other things, I mean, he's built, you know, one of the best climate think tanks uh, in the world today in 11 years of our operation. You know, our team has grown from being like what less than 20 when I joined seven years ago to almost reaching 200 this year. So he's, I mean, you know, he's, he's many, many things. And amongst one of his pet How on issues, earth do you have 200 people in a think tank? I mean, what do you do all day? Oh gosh, we, we do a lot of work, actually. We do a lot of work. And, uh, and, you know, when you asked me, like, how do you sort of make sure that the work that you're doing is not fulfilling a philanthropist narrative. I think the way that we do that is because we're working with people who you may say lie on opposite ends of the spectrum in different parts of our work. You know, so there's checks and balances sort of inherent 
to the research that we put out in the public domain and all of the work that we do is in the public domain. So as publishing this as a working paper is part of our strategy to ensure that, you know, even the folks who are not able to access journal papers and, you know, already know what the work is about before it's officially published in, in a journal. Um, sorry, I digressed into institutional stuff uh, again. But, That's all right. Um, it's part of the process. But, yeah. you know, where, where is this, what journal is this going out in and, and, and how much trouble did you get a peer review? So I'm not sure if it has even gone for peer review. But for our peer review, it was hard because there were literally four people that we could think of, you know, because we were trying to get people who understood a little bit of the Montreal Protocol, who knew enough about the technologies, you know, and were generally conversant in global governance to be able to do this. And I think it took us almost a month and a half to be able to zero in on the few people that agreed to finally peer review the piece. And then we had to send it for a second round of peer review because we gathered that one of the reviewers, I mean, we saw the lack of commentary that we got from one of the reviewers and we like to make lives harder for ourselves. So then we went back to find another reviewer to make sure that we were actually getting someone, you know, who was giving us feedback um, rather than someone who was just sort of saying like, yeah, it's fine, go ahead and publish it. Yeah, for all the, for all the complaints you get about peer review it's actually even more worrying when someone comes back and says yeah i like your paper yeah like, exactly well, it, how it's can like, it be perfect you can't even have yeah, read it exactly exactly but that happened on this piece and that usually does not happen you know with with work that we do but we did have that experience with this paper um but i think for us it was just ask for another review or what yes no we found someone else we found uh, someone was this, else to this, review was this an internal review or was this so we only have we only had Arunabha review this internally and we have a very strong peer review protocol for all of our publications where you need to have at least two people um, peer review the work externally. So we had Michael Thompson, who is from C2G, and then we had uh, Larissa, who is with E3G, who was our other reviewer on this. So what was the second review? Where What was their institution? E3G. Um, it's based out of Brussels. I've never heard of it. Tell me more about that. Oh, I actually don't know so much about E3G. It's a think tank and it works on a range of issue areas. I know that they do work on cooling. So Larissa is involved on the Montreal Protocol side of the work there. But I'm, I'm afraid I don't actually know very much about E3G. Okay, so the, the paper is downloadable from your website, but it's not available in a peer-reviewed journal as yet, but you are, you're submitting it to a peer-reviewed journal. Is that the case? That's right. But the paper in the form that it is downloadable now has been externally peer-reviewed as well. Okay. Yeah. So we've gone through in some depth the issues around the Montreal Protocol and how it might or might not be used in this situation and your reservations about the likelihood of that happening and also about the suitability of it happening is there anything that you feel that we haven't covered yet or not um i would actually really like to ask you how you got into doing this podcast and also what like how do you define the line between deployment and research experimentation when it comes to climate geoengineering um, well, I've learned a long time ago, I'm not permitted to have opinions in this space. <laughs> so I don't have any opinions. I just ask other people what theirs are. So I never say anything on Twitter. 
I never say anything on the podcast, apart from the odd kind of outburst when someone provokes me unduly. But uh, when I've got my more temperate head on, I don't say anything. If you want to see what I think about an issue, then see if I've got a paper out on it. It's in the literature. If I have a thought, I'll publish it. But uh, assume that I am a, a virginal and innocent member of the geoengineering community with no opinions of their own other than that <laughs> what their masters tell them to have until such time as I decided to stick my head over the parapet and give you the benefit mm. of my opinions. And, and that's how it's staying on this podcast for now. Okay. okay. So bearing in mind, you have declined the opportunity to comment further. Uh, it's incumbent on me to throw you out of our studio <laughs> some trumped up charges of academic and misendeavour that we'll use to reject both you and your work. And on this occasion, I think really it's the frustrating lack of foresight in your work that that doesn't give me the answers I'm, I'm looking for. You've identified that the Montreal Protocol might be very influential in this field, but you've really sat very firmly on the fence as to whether it is or is not likely to happen. And I think that the yeah, problem in this field... Yeah, that's not what the paper's is, about. Well, I don't care. That's what this paper should have been about. I'm, <laughs> I'm a peer reviewer, and I am allowed to tell you if I think your paper should have been about something completely different. And believe me, right. I have plenty of reviews <laughs> that have come back saying, I do not like your paper. I wanted a right. story about a bear, and I did not get a story about a bear, and therefore I'm going to reject it. And I want you to... to bring me a paper which is not fence-sitting and which is going to tell me whether the Montreal Protocol is or is not going to regulate this field in future. Now, you might mm. say that that is completely unreasonable, but that is my freedom as a reviewer to be completely unreasonable, and I very much enjoy it. Well, so with that, you are, you are being fenestrated from the reviewer to studio with my size 11 boot print firmly upon your body and you can come back when you've written a paper that i happen to like so thank you for coming uh, on the show and we hope you. to hear from you soon yeah thanks a lot ciao bye-bye